Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month, powered by 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. I'm your host, Famie Redwood. If you're expecting this series to be the same black history facts from the same black history flashcards you've been taught since grade school, that is not what this is. This episode is all about black comedy. Meet Christiana Jackson. Dating in your 30s is like shopping through the stuff at Marshall's that goes on sale, you know? She's up and coming, black, lives in Harlem, and obviously single. Christiana follows the long history of black comedians who use observational humor to point out the absurdities in life. That includes race. I had a white stepdad growing up, but I had a white stepdad in the 80s. And let's face it, guys, that was their heyday, right? They peaked. They were celebrated on TV shows. You know, like you had different strokes and Webster and Alf, all great white stepdads. Black comedy is inherently political. It provides a true reflection of African-American life, both the celebratory moments and the times where laughter is needed to move through pain. Its history is long and complicated. While the black comedic journey includes the dehumanizing effects of minstrel shows, it also features groundbreaking artistry from people like Red Fox, people who changed the game and therefore America. In this episode of Beyond Black History Month, we are following Christiana on a full night of gigs. She shows us how she brings her authentic experiences as a black woman into her comedy, while not necessarily fitting into the box black comedians sometimes find themselves trapped in. We will also speak with Dr. Mark Anthony Neal. He's a professor of African-American studies at Duke University. He will guide us through the history of the black voice in American comedy, where it's been and where it's going. Over the next 30-ish minutes, you will laugh and you will learn. You will also hear a lot of bleeps. Christiana curses a lot. But I want to warn you, outside of that, to understand the history of comedy, we have to revisit a time when racial slurs were used without pause and without consequence. There will be some offensive language. She is absolutely hysterical. You may have seen her in the New York Comedy Festival. Make it loud for Christiana Jackson! I'm Christiana Jackson. I'm a stand-up comedian. 
sneakerhead, uh, ice cream maker. Yeah. Anyone here from Mexico before? Yeah. Okay. So some of you, some of you know the rules when you go to Mexico, right? Don't drink the water and don't be black. They are so racist, guys. White people, you had no idea they could do that, did you, right? You're like, oh my God, racist Mexicans, they really are taking all our jobs away. I think the city is, is getting a lot whiter. And when I look out, I see less people who look like me. And then you start to think, well, like, okay, well, I don't want to feel like I'm on, like, this is like the, like, I'm the minstrel show part of a f***ing comedy, you know what I mean? Like, here we go. Like, because then it's like, oh, am I only performing for white people? You know, the minstrel show history is really complicated because in a simple definition, you know, minstrels were barred to travel the countryside to sing songs and were fairly innocuous. Our reaction these days to minstrels is really about the particular practice of blackface minstrels. These would have been white minstrels who, using various technologies, would have painted their face black and would have performed as black folk. That's Dr. Neal. He's a professor of African-American studies at Duke University. White people didn't just paint their faces black in minstrel shows. They would also paint their lips white, but make them so large, it would practically take up an entertainer's entire bottom half of their face. This was one of their ways to make fun of black features, dark skin, and fuller lips. Here's one minstrel called Whispering Pete. It's supposed to be a comedy, and it featured white actors in full blackface. Well, here's Whistling Pete. Hello, Jim. How are you coming on? Huh? Oh, coming on very nice. Mm-hmm. Hey, boy, what are you doing for a living now? Oh, I'm living off to intercept my money now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't got long to live, have you? No, I ain't. <laughs> Jim, what are you doing for a living now? Oh, I'm living on the interest of what I owe. <laughs> Say to your man, you never will die. <laughs> These minstrels also depicted black people as bumbling fools. We typically trace that beginnings to a man by the name of T.D. Rice who happened to see a crippled black man doing a dance. That black man then became called Jim Crow and T.D. Rice made a living performing the Jim Crow dance, right? And that's really the foundational piece of what we understand as as blackface minstrelsy in the United States. The person credited with being America's first black star performed in blackface. You know, Burt Williams is is a fascinating figure for a bunch of reasons, but in the 1890s, he begins a partnership with another performer by the name of George Walker. They get known as Williams and Walker throughout the 1890s, beginning of the the 20th century. And they got involved because they saw all of these blackface minstrels, you know, their tag, right, was that those folks are performing as coons, but we're actually two real coons, right? And so, you know, George Walker was dark enough that he didn't have to blacking up his face. Burt Williams was very light, right? So he, you know, put the shoe polish and the charcoal on his face. Walker dies fairly early in the 20th century, but Burt Williams emerges as this really black first crossover star, being able to do things on stage very often in in white productions. And, And it was a challenge for Burt Williams. Right. You know, this idea of double consciousness, which really comes out of the work of W.B. Du Bois and and his classic work, The Souls of Black Folks. You know, when he talks about, you know, the black person is always has these these two warring souls. Right. And those souls are 
who that person is and who that person knows white Americans sees them as. And Burt Williams was the perfect example of this challenge because here he is this sophisticated Caribbean-born Black man who's light-skinned, who can speak the King's language, who could perform Shakespeare, but he's forced to put on this charcoal every night. And that's who white America sees him as. It really, I think, psychologically was a real challenge for Williams, you know, once he took off the mask, right? You know, thinking again about some of the great work from that period of time, like the poem, We Wear the Mask. When he takes off that mask, white America still sees him in that way. And, and for him, that was really a psychological challenge, as it was for many Black Americans. Any New Year's resolutions? Yeah. Well, <laughs> sir, you do look like you've given up. I don't know if you live here, if we're like, is this your house? No. This is like, this is like I, that's a problem with Brooklyn. I live in Harlem, man. We have style. Brooklyn, you don't know if someone's homeless or like fashionable. Which one are you? Okay, so I used to, I worked in real estate and I would write down things to myself. I would, I would write down, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was writing down punchlines. And then my whole life mode has been keeping myself entertained. So I would write down things and then if I was bored, I would just go back to my Blackberry. I had a thing called funnies and I put down the year. And then, then just for my own entertainment. And then I did, the first time I properly like told jokes was at my friend's 30th birthday roast. He's, he's white, all of his friends are white. The, he used to do debate in college. So I was like, I gotta come in and, you know, really like rep women and black people at the same time. Also, he they were like down in Maryland. I lived in New York. I, mean, I gotta rep like three groups of people at once. So I had to come in hard. So I knew what my closer was gonna be. But I wrote most of it on the way down. Like I had kind of loose jokes. So it was my first time performing, but I also, I knew that I fucking killed. Cause I, <laughs> I'm a funny bitch, so. But then afterwards everyone was like, oh, but you're like a comic. And I was like, no, I'm a real estate agent. They were like, oh, but you're like a professional, you're like a comedian. And I was like, no, 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 I work in real estate. So that was great. And then, but that's when I started to really think like, that was like 2011. That's when I started to really think like, all right, man, you should, you know, just cause you get that feeling. You know, you're like, oh, I always knew it was a funny b now everyone else knows and then you're like everyone else needs to know too so I really really started like honing in on like writing proper jokes and that and then I started performing that summer of 2013. This is Beyond Black History Month we'll be right back. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month I'm your host Femi Redwood. <laughs> In the early 20th century, I mean, pretty much well through until the mid 20th century, you know, many venues were segregated. So it was very difficult for Black artists to perform in white venues to the extent that white America saw Black performers and artists. It was very often in Black spaces, but but they were able to build this kind of institutional network of, of clubs, saloons, bars, theaters that we now refer to as the Chitlin Circuit, you know, where Black artists could go out there and do comedy, could sing songs, could do all kinds of different performances performances, largely for Black audiences, right? And, and it's really where Black culture develops, and particularly the Black comedic tradition begins to develop in these Chitlin Circuit spaces. 
moms and Avery is so significant. Well, because she's a woman. And when you talk about her coming through the Chitlin circuit, I mean, she really doesn't break through to white America until the 1960s. Red Fox also is a great example of someone who comes through the Chitlin circuit, right? And, and one of the freedoms of the Chitlin circuit is that Black reformers could say just about anything, right? They could push the envelope around issues of sexuality, for instance, you know, stuff that we might think of as, you know, too blue for a mainstream audience. You know, Red Fox would kind of push those issues on the Chitlin circuit. And he became known as this comedian who would do that and begin to record these albums, what he called party albums, right? The kind of albums you would play at a house party where everybody could sit around and listen to the jokes that you may not have been able to do at home. He becomes significant because somehow they figured out how to bottle that Red Fox energy. And of course, it became this television show that we know as Sanford and Son. And he was really the first of that Chitlin Circuit generation to break through with mainstream success. I'm still, I'm trying to date, you know? Someone invited me to go see Fantasia at the Apollo. And I was like, oh my God, that is so sweet, but I'm not that type of black. You know what I'm saying? And I want to clarify, I love all black women. I don't have a problem with black women who are Fantasia black. I'm just, I'm just cautious. I'm just cautious. Because Fantasia looks a lot like the hood girls who made fun of me on the subway. So, just a little cautious. Now, this is, this is a very black crowd. This is when some of you are starting to realize that I'm talking about Fantasia the black woman who won American Idol, and not the Disney movie. <laughs> Just to clarify, I'm not that kind of black either, guys. I hate Disney. I am Muppets black, okay? That's me. When I think about comedy and my influences and stuff, well, I loved Miss Piggy. She was my f***ing <laughs> She was hilarious to me. But also... When I think about like me expressing myself comedically, I loved Ed Grimley. I used to do Ed Grimley impersonations around my house, which is bizarre for a like seven year old black girl to be, you know, doing Ed Grimley impersonations. I'm from Jersey. That's where I'm from. Yeah. Exotic New Jersey. I'm from a place called Phillipsburg. Anyone ever hear of it? That's about right. I don't even say that I come from a town. I say I come from parts. You guys ever watch a movie and there's like a wild-eyed white dude and he's like, you're not welcome around these parts. <laughs> Those are the kind of parts I come from, guys. I grew up in the sticks in New Jersey. There were, before we had a mall, we had a cornfield. This is what's interesting about talking about the topic of black comedy because I don't fit into a box very, very well. There's always a pushback, right? There's always a reaction. But then when you see progress, you're like, all right, man, maybe we're all going to be all right. But so I do feel I do feel hopeful, but I am also still aware of boxes that need to be ticked in, in certain ways, like and the powers that be and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I do also just feel like, well, you just got to like, you know, as if in any areas of being a, a, not an outsider, but not part of the majority, you just have to push that much harder. You just have to work that much harder. It's just, I find like acknowledging it is makes it to be realistic. You know what you're dealing with. So you know what you're up against. 
Dick Gregory was born in Chicago, came up in the mid 1950s, had a particular gift of gab, right? Knew how to talk, knew how to talk to mainstream audiences. His big break, you know, came when he was asked to perform at the Playboy Club to a largely white audience, right? And he was so successful that, you know, they booked him for a regular gig. And Dick Gregory is so significant in this moment because he was the context in which black comedians began to get paid, right? He was really the first star in that regard, right? You know, we could talk about someone, you know, like Lincoln Perry, AKA Step and Fetch It, right? Who of course was a film presence, you know, in the thirties and the forties. But in terms of someone who would just go there on stage and tell their jokes and stand there and not have to act, not have to do physical comedy, not have to bug their eyes, could just sit there and tell stories. You know, that was Dick Gregory's thing, right? And he got paid very well from that. And, and that opened the door, right? He was able to get white folks to laugh at their own racism. And he could have had had a very, very successful career as a mainstream, right? He he could have been the Red Fox with a television show. And he sacrificed a great deal, right, for the civil rights movement that opened up opportunities, both for the civil rights movement, but obviously for artists to come after him, you know, who could have mainstream success, most notably, you know, Bill Cosby. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. It's hard to put into context, particularly for younger folks. Bill Cosby is a significant figure in the way that white America sees black comedians, but also mainstream. You know, we make a joke of this now, and, and for many good reasons, Bill Cosby, he was selling jello pudding. You know, the only black people doing that, and, and ironically, both of them are intensely problematic now, the only black people doing it in the late 1970s are O.J. Simpson and Bill Cosby, right, who were selling, right, to mainstream white audiences about things that have nothing to do with blackness. So he was someone who had transcended race, right? And I think that was important because it, it created a path for artists like him, but it also created the context in which there would be artists who would be the antithesis of that. I want to start off with a question. How do you guys feel about interracial relationships? It's a very racist section right over here. I didn't say you had to be in one. I think that in terms of power dynamics, 
I can get away with more as a black comedian. I mean, I call women to their face all the time. First of all, as a white man, he the, he would get in trouble. People would be like, Key, this man called me a I think there is a, there is a little bit of a power identity. We were like, uh, she is a, a big, shapely, solidly built black woman. I should probably just let her call me a you know what I mean? Like, I, I do, sometimes I'll be like, damn, I can't believe they let me talk to them that way. But I do think that I'm not, I'm not leaning into it. I just, I'm just being me and being present. But sometimes I do reflect and I'm like, oh, there's no way they would have taken that from another white person or from a man. Like, they're just basically like, I think they, they get a little intimidated and they're like, oh, well, I got to rock with this chick calling me a for no, like addressing me that way. Not, that's the thing. I, I, I don't do it on purpose. But just, I mean, that's how I talk to myself. I'll talk to myself and be like, God damn, you can take out the trash. Like, so, so it's not. But I do think that people will will let me get away with a lot more because they're scared of me, basically. So Richard Pryor gets his start, you know, trying to be Little Cosby. <laughs> you know, spends some time in Haight-Ashbury, reads the autobiography of Malcolm X. He's all around everything that's happening in the summer of love, on the fringe of the Panthers, right? And, and he has this moment of clarity. Right, it's like I don't want to be like Bill Cosby, and he remakes his whole thing. And in many ways, you know, Dick Gregory is an example of a political way to do this. Bill Cosby is the way, you know, in terms of a mainstream way. Richard Pryor cut it right through the middle, right? And he could be vulgar like Red Fox. He could be universal like Bill Cosby. Right. But really created a whole nother realm of black comedy, you know, that creates everybody that we know now as famous comedians. Right. You know, whether we're talking about someone like Martha Warfield, you know, in terms of what she does, television and stand up, obviously Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock. Right. All those names, Kevin Hart, you know, Tommy Davidson, all those folks, you know, prior creates the template for them to be able to basically do and say whatever they wanted to do and say. It's complicated because once again, it's a matter of, okay, there's a certain amount of freedom in terms of now how you can show your, your funny, right? Like with social media and stuff, but to get to a certain level, then it's still a matter of the powers that be in the construct that is. I'm hopeful because first of all, there's so many more comedians that I know who are working on shows, like in they're producing, they're writing, like, so that's like, to me, like so exciting. It's like, it's inspiring to me when people I'm not the kind of person where people get shit, I feel envious for me. I feel like man, it's possible. So I will say like, especially if it's not just a name, when you know that name and you know that name is a black comedian, you're like, man, like they're doing it. It is it is super inspiring. So I just hope we move more towards that direction. Just inclusiveness for everybody because it's America. You know, like I think of things obviously about my community, but I just think about things like America is just, we have everyone here. So there should be just be more representation, period. 
you know, the fact that Black comedy has given comedians a license to use comedy to do social commentary, to do political commentary, right? And it's not that Black comedy did it first, but it's built into the infrastructure of what Black comedy is, right? This expectation that when you see a Black comedy comedian, at some point you will hear some sort of commentary about the world around race and gender and sexuality. I want to keep making people uncomfortable. I'm out for uh, respect. I want to be respected as a comedian. And as a woman, we are not respected as much. I get told a lot that I get booked because I get, uh, not a lot, but I've been told before that I get booked or I'm busy, not because I'm funny, but because I am a twofer, a person of color, I'm a woman. And I've had been told this by other white women. Like, oh, well, that's why you get booked a lot because you're black and you're a woman. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty funny actually. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not one of those comments like, well, no, no, I'm fucking funny, f*** you. Uh, that's why I get booked and I have to work so much harder than you do to, to get booked. And I have to be funny and I have to be funnier than you to get the same stage time or more, whatever. I get my cards read, I don't know how long like I said, I get my cards read by an old Dominican woman and I trust her because she's accurate. I went to go see her the first time, it's for about an ex-boyfriend. She was describing him physically. She was like, he's short, but he's strong. And I was like, yes. She's like, he's like around our color. And I was like, yes. And then to test her, I asked a question about his personality. And I said, is he smart? And she went, mm. and I was like, that's him! That's Bobby! Oh, Bobby is so dumb. It was a fun night. It was a great night. The first show, of course, it, it's, it's always interesting when you get back up the first time in like a couple of days. And then with, within, with the, the audience in that neighborhood, in that part of Bushwick, it's always for me interesting to see how much they're going to accept who I am or let their politics determine if they're going to laugh or not. They were, they were fun. They were fun. It, but I knew, I always know like, I'm like, okay, this is like abandoned warehouse. Am I going to get murdered on the way to the show? Part of Bushwick is always going to be the tightest, wokiest, like not anything controversial, but they were great. They were a lot of fun. I think what's important when we look back at the history of some of the blackface performers in those early crossover artists, and I'm thinking specifically about Lincoln Perry, Stephen Fetchett, and Burt Williams, we can be hard on the kind of choices that they made in their careers, right? You know, it, it's easy for us, I think, from a 21st century standpoint to go, why did you put blackface on? You know, those folks, the Mons Mabley's, the Lincoln Perry's, the Burt Williams, you know, they made sacrifices and performed in ways that they could only perform. They didn't have any options. And to their benefit was able to translate those very stereotypical performances, right? To be able to contribute to black American ways that they would not have been able to do otherwise. So I think we should just really be more gentle and tender with the choices that that generation of artists had to make, right? In order to do the work that they do. In 2021, I was in the Black Women in Comedy Festival. It was the first time that I felt how white male comedians feel. Every time I go on stage, there is always a visual response. And a lot of times you understand that the audience has to adjust to accepting you as a comedian, period. So doing the festival, like to see everyone excited, I was like, Oh, they know that they're here to see black women. 
like first it was a question and then it was a statement like they know that they're here to see black women and they want to hear what we have to say so as a black woman i will say specifically it's almost like you're you have to pitch that you're a comic that's as being a woman period in comedy but then as a black woman especially you're so the opposite sometimes you're the whole lineup you're the complete opposite and all of a sudden your black gets up there and everyone's kind of like what's she gonna say and it's like oh buckle up because it's gonna be a lot it's gonna be a lot but doing that festival and seeing that the audience was open like there was no threshold to cross over i'm like they're here and they want to hear us and it made me realize like that's how every white dude feels when he goes on stage he's already accepted as the status quo of like you are a comedian where for us it's a constant you have to fight for the laughs you have to fight for them to accept you as a comic i don't think we can correctly figure out what's coming next because we don't know what kind of technology is going to allow comedians to be able to do the work that they do. The only thing I think we can guarantee is that black comedians will continue to give a particular framing of what it means to be black in the world. It's ironic how much pain is embedded in black comedy. This art form that brings so much happiness was built on so much suffering. Burt Williams performed at Buckingham Palace, and his salary is said to have rivaled U.S. presidents, but he was a black man that had to participate in blackface to have a successful career. Moms Mabley survived a horrific youth to later become one of the most iconic comedians performing at top venues, including the Apollo and Carnegie Hall. But it's up for debate just how out of the closet she was able to be, and she made less than her counterparts on account of her race and gender. Red Fox brought taboo subjects into the open. His success went beyond stage to TV, and at one point his show Sanford and Son was so popular, the network it was on ran it twice a week. But despite reaching levels his predecessors could only imagine, he told reporters he was victimized by the pervasive racism in the entertainment industry. Pearl Bailey, Paul Mooney, Dick Gregory, John Weatherspoon, the list goes on. There are several more names and several more stories, several more highs and several more lows. But despite this, these titans of industry, they continue telling their truths, an inherently political existence that helped bring black joy. And the tradition continues to this day. All right, that's my time. Enjoy the rest of the show. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our Beyond Black History Month series, you know what to do. Subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Odyssey app. Also, please rate and review our podcast. It helps us in the podcast rankings. Beyond Black History Month is a production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to producer Dempsey Pillott, Andy Egan Thorpe, our producer and audio engineer. Our executive producer is Ivan Lee. The WCBS News Radio 880 brand manager is Tim Schaud and Ben Mem- Everack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Fami Redwood. Thanks for listening. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.